everyone. Hey guys. Hello. Hey there. Hello. Yeah, there's only five little intro. Y'all are leveling. I see We're that. trying to be yeah. like you when we grow up. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Oh, well, everybody, thank you so much for coming to Too Legit to QT, where you can be on your baby come up with me, Koya, and yes, yes, and we can just get it done with Tish. Yeah, yeah, we are so excited today, guys. We are ha we are doing a joint episode with Davon Williams from the Receipts, who had a bomb episode today, guys. He was bringing the receipts when he said it was nice. so good it was such a good episode and we're also featuring john cry who's an amazing writer but also a former creative director at new market films he's done some amazing projects you might know memento uh the prestige he's all those good movies and um hesher which is actually oh, out thank of the you one of my favorites. Thank you for the shout out for Hesher. That's a yeah. A lot of people forget about Hesher. That's a good little movie. Yeah, no, but it's it's actually it's a really well put together independent. Yeah. Let's just go. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, uh, yeah. Natalie Portman and Jessica Gordon-Levitt and Rain Wilson. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a great it's a great little movie. Uh, but yeah, thank you. A lot of uh, it's, and I'm saying that I can say this like without it being like an e egocentric thing, by the way, because I didn't actually make that film. <laughs> I, I only only bought it so and distributed it. So, you know, I like you, I'm a big fan. And, you know, I just liked it enough that I got somebody else to put up money to release it, you know? Uh, but yeah, I love that movie. It's by a director named Spencer Susser, uh, writer, director, mm -hmm. and just a really great guy uh, as well. Um, and a, a fantastic little film, but thank you. That's very cool. You're welcome. You're welcome. So John, um, speaking of New Market Films, so you were the creative director there, and um, I was looking at your IMBD, and it said that you were uh, leading develop. You were leading the development, acquisition, production, and distribution of films. Yes. Um, can you just tell the people on here a little bit about what that process looks like? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, really, uh, New Market um, is probably the same as uh, a lot of uh, independent companies, certainly of the time. Uh, and we were a, uh, a late 90s phenomenon, you know. Um, uh, that company existed because of the amount of money that was in the market, you know, at the time in the late 90s. Um, and it was founded by two bankers, uh, a gentleman by the name of Will Tyrer, another uh, by the name of Chris Bull. Two English bankers uh, who had come over here, and uh, they had been um, doing gap financing, which is um, basically the same as bridge loans for for film. Uh, you know, they were just coming in and supplying that last little bit of money to get the film to the finish line, and uh, they had done that. Um, uh, you know, I, I believe it was 40 some times uh, prior mm. to getting involved in bringing me in, but they were only bankrolling and in, in very small amounts of money. 
Um, at the time, they had money in a company called uh, Summit Entertainment, which is a foreign sales company. It's now part of Lionsgate, uh, but at the time, it was just an independent sales company. And um, I was working there, and Will and Chris um, owned, or, or at least were funding most of the uh, projects through Summit. And so they were reading my coverage. You know, I was at Summit writing script coverage, and all of the story notes that came out of Summit's sales department, you know, their one sheets and things, um, came from me. Uh, it's the only thing that Will and Chris ever saw. So at the point where they were ready to start getting involved in anything beyond gap financing, they asked me to come over and uh, essentially be their liaison, you know, be the person who took the meetings. Both of them kind of retiring guys. They're, they were not, uh, they were English bankers and they had, they have the personalities. I don't think they'll feel insulted by saying this, the personalities of English bankers. And uh, they frankly didn't really want to sit and talk to artists uh, and wouldn't really understand what the artists were saying anyway. So I kind of became a translator that I took all the meetings for them. Um, and uh, over time, uh, as their business grew, I was always the guy it, there with them saying, sure, I can do that. And uh, the business grew because they wanted to get involved in, um, in, in a project they could own uh, entirely, um, not just being a, a gap financier, but something that they could control the project from the earliest development, from, you know, the, from concept all the way through uh, completion. It, the idea was not to self-distribute, but to um, but to produce the thing in house. That way, we could uh, we could control it. And um, and so that first film that we did that with was Memento, because um, uh, I was at the time hanging out with uh, a producer friend named Aaron Ryder and uh, Christopher Nolan, who had just moved over from the UK. And so we were just we were hanging out as friends, and um, and it literally was just me being stupid and not knowing that you didn't do this. Um, uh, because I was, you know, 28, 27, 28. And, uh, uh, when they said, you know, do you have, can, can you put together a film from nothing? I was like, yeah, all right, sure. Uh, I'd made a couple of short films. It could be harder than that. So, um, uh, fortunately they were also very naive and they bankrolled, uh, Memento and, um, and fortunately Chris is very good at what he does. Um, we also bought Chris's uh, student film, which is the only film he had made to date. Uh, we bought that's called The Following. We bought that as well. And um, then we tried to sell the film and nobody wanted it. So um, uh, basically we were stuck. We had, you know, I had now spent four and a half million dollars of somebody else's money mm. and, um, and nobody wanted the movie. And uh, very fortunately, um, Will Tyrer believed in the movie enough that he said, we'll, we'll self-release it then. And um, he bankrolled the release. And um, uh, there was a marketeer, a guy named Bob Burney, who had just released a movie called Happiness um, that uh, was a very difficult sell, um, has uh, some pedophilia themes in it that made it, you know, a very, was, you know, uh, a difficult film. And, uh, yeah, you just go slide through the past that, John. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it is. It is a. It is a good movie, um, but it deals with some difficult topics. And so we we're like, you know what? If he can sell that one, <laughs> we bet he can sell Memento, and he could. And um, but then basically, we suddenly had a, a distribution company too. So um, uh, at that point, anything that we that I was developing to uh, to produce with our in-house producer Aaron, uh, we were then taking right on out. To market, so um, so I was developing the material. Uh, Aaron and I were working together on the production, which was funded through Will and Chris, uh, and then um, Bob uh, was uh, developing the marketing plan. We would take it out, um, and uh, he, Bob had his team uh, based out of New York that were our bookers and you know, collections and everything. So we essentially, there were fewer than 10 of us in the company, but we were working like a studio. Um, and when I say 10 of us, that includes, you know, front desk reception and accounts payable and receivable. I think there was actually eight of us, you know, and, um, and when there's only eight of you in the company, you're doing everything. And, I, that was the way I learned how to do it. It's the only way I know how to do it. And uh, when they sold the company in 2011 and, um, uh, or 20, I'm sorry, when they sold the company in 2010 and I went to uh, work for a, a larger, more corporate, more studio uh, style company, it just, it was not a fit. I had been an independent at that point for 12 years and I couldn't do it any other way. Speaking yeah. of independent, I would love to know a little bit more. We just had uh, an episode of The Receipts where we're essentially talking about this idea that when there was an issue in our Actors' Equity Union, uh, a lot of the argument from a lot of the actors was, well, our pensions, our projects, our investments. And the mm -hmm. response from minorities was, oh, y'all have that? We're just doing this because we need to survive. <laughs> so one of the things that got me yeah. when you first started speaking was this idea of reinvesting and buying and understanding what a good project is how would you advise for myself even who's getting more interested in navigating out of acting and more into pitching and producing and buying how do we reinvest in ourselves and our company and build that wealth that's that is exactly what every artist should be doing right now. It's why I, I think this is so great, this, uh, this show. Uh, it's a way of reinvesting in yourself at this time. A lot of people talk about doing that, and it's, it's very difficult to do. Um, but the reinvestment uh, in yourself as an artist, it, um, uh, that's a really great way of thinking about it. Um, what I've been advising um, for for years now, simply because, again, it's the only way that I that I knew how to do things. It was my experience, is that you've got to um, to actually uh, con you you have to control the intellectual property yourself. You have to control your options yourself. There was something that that as an actor, uh, I moved out to L.A. as an actor. Um, I had had a theater company in Los Angeles. Um, I'm sorry, in Boston. Uh, that I had with a partner coming out of uh, college and great theater town in Boston. We did stand up, we did this sort of neo vaudeville thing. It was great. We had a weekly show in a theater. We moved to LA and just it was not the same scene. It was very difficult to keep up, you know, theater. That's when I started, I, I got into 
shooting shorts because I realized that as an actor in Boston, I could write shows, I could produce shows, I could put them up, I could market them, I could get an audience, I could sustain myself. But in Los Angeles, suddenly I couldn't do that. And uh, at least not the way that, that I was used to. And I realized that, well, I'm gonna have to start making film then, that's the, the language of Los Angeles' film. And in, in doing that, kind of falling into this, well, who are my friends here that make movies? Um, in doing that as, out of desperation, really, um, what I realized was that um, by learning the skills of a producer, uh, the actor creates options. Um, when I first got out here as an actor, um, uh, I think it was like, a, it, it was a new year, I believe it, uh, it had just turned um, uh, 1997, I think it was New Year's of 97. And someone asked me, well, you know, what are your resolutions for this year? What do you want to do? And I was like, well, I'd like to get a new agent. And they're like, well, yeah, but you can't do that. You can try to do that. You can resolve to send out headshots to however many agents, but you can't make them take you. I was like, oh, right, yeah. Um, I want to be cast in a great role. Uh, well, yeah, but you can't do that either. Uh, you, you, you can hope to be cast. You can audition more, but you can't give yourself that. Like when I suddenly realized that I had no power, <laughs> uh, that I had no control of the story, I had no control of what stories I was going to tell, it, I felt really defeated. And um, fortunately, I suppose right at that time, I also had to get a job because uh, uh, my ex-wife was pregnant with our, our eldest. And I suddenly realized that I needed an income. And that's when I started reading scripts as a script reader. That's actually what took me to Summit. Uh, as, uh, as someone in the creative department uh, needing to, to keep a paycheck going. And as an actor saying, okay, I can't go on as, as many auditions, what can I do? I can make short films, I can write. And the writing of those first few short films is what you know created all of the relationships that then built Newmarket. So, um, uh, and, and that was, you know, incrementally, that's what it was. So um, learning the skills of, of how to, you know, uh, there's, if there's a story that you want to tell a character you want to play, um, make that short, you know. Um, uh, I used to say uh, a few years ago, um, you're going to have to find a way to make a feature uh, because monetizing shorts was very difficult. But even today, even making shorts, you know, um, uh, whatever you need to do to make, you, you need to create and you need to create consistently. Uh, you know, that's, and, and if you can put yourself into a, a space where you can sustain yourself and you're able to keep creating consistently, you're going to develop those skills and you're going to build an audience. That's the other great thing is right now with like with podcasts and YouTube and everything, you can actually be building the audience while you acquire the skill set, you know, which is great. So guys, I just want to stop. I did see one comment. I just want to preference something really quick, guys. Um, when we when we were talking about the pedophilia just a moment ago, we yeah. weren't laughing at pedophilia. No, 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 no. Oh. I'm sorry. I, I, I laughed because I suddenly became uncomfortable because I, I realized I had dropped yeah. a very heavy subject suddenly right in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, that's what it was. It was just like we kind of were listening and glazed over it and then brought it to yes. like 
it is because it is such a heavy subject. It, it, it so, is, and, and I brought it up just uh, out of the point. I wanted to make sure that I got the uh, um, yes, it's a, a it's a Todd Salon's film. I wanted to make sure that I had the director correct. Yeah, it's a Todd Salon's film, and uh, it deals with that topic in a very sensitive okay. way. But it is, uh, you know, anytime you deal with that topic, it's very sensitive. I also distributed right. a film. Uh, called The Woodsman, which is a Kevin Bacon film, which um, which also deals with you know it, the story there is that he is a um, Kevin Bacon is a, a man who is convicted of um, having molested a child, and uh, and he gets he's out of prison having served his time, and uh, his parole officer is Mosdef, and um, who was going by Mosdef at the time, and. Um, the in, the story is you're, like you're not sure if he actually did it or not. You only know that this is somebody who has now allegedly paid their debts to society, but what they paid their debt for is something horrific. And so, how do you forgive that person, or how do you allow that person to go on with their life if it was something that bad? It was a sort of a test of your empathy and your and your forgiveness. So yeah, I, I did not mean in any way to uh, to diminish that topic. It's something that I've spent a good deal of time defending the conversation on with both of uh, right. you know, with with our film The Woodsman and and uh, also in defense of happiness, which is a, a wonderful film. But um, yeah, didn't mean to in any in any way diminish that subject. And also, um, just to put out there, I've, I've watched I watched a few of your films, and it seems like a lot of them are like psychological thrillers. So they're like getting into the mindset of like the what if, and if we like you know make it so big to where we're exploring you know just a, like psychological thrillers. I can't explain it any mm -hmm. any other way. So. Um, and they're and they're taking a subject that might be taboo um, and exploring that. So and it seems like maybe that's those are the type of projects that you that you are like that you work on and that you explore and whatnot. Are you attracted to psychological thrillers or? Uh, you know what? I it's funny. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I, I think I'm attracted to um, I'm attracted to to auteurs. Really, I'm attracted to stories that are very self specific. That are. Um, I used to always say uh, at Newmarket that um, we wanted to have films, whether it was the films that we we developed or, you know, once we had the distribution pipeline, I started doing the festival circuit acquiring film rights because we had to keep the pipeline full. We couldn't make everything. So I started acquiring films too. And, um, and I used to say that one of my benchmarks was, um, I want I want this film to be so self-specific that you cannot mistake it for anything else. If you saw a frame out of it, you would know what film it was, uh, or at the very least, you couldn't mistake it for something else. And um, and that was really because we didn't have any money. Um, we we couldn't market anything. So it's like with Memento is like. If you see one backwards film this year, make it Memento. You know, it's like it's the only one. So um, it. Uh, it ends up spreading by word of mouth because you know everybody knows that thing. We also ended up getting a reputation for buying films or, or releasing films that nobody else wanted, um, right. and because like Donnie Darko was passed on by everybody, Hesher was passed on by everybody. Um, you know, Memento, we couldn't get anyone else to distribute it with us. So um, uh, that uh that kind of developed again out of necessity but also i think um 
a lot of it's just it's it's it was a combination of my taste because those were things that I would bring in and then show to Will and Chris, and then um, uh, Will um, it, it, he kind of looked at everything like an art collector. He was like, "If I like this movie, we're going to acquire it, and if we can't figure out how to release it, we'll just I don't know, we'll just, I guess have it, <laughs> you know." And uh, he he never he never thought of the business first. Um, right. Uh, Chris did, um, and fortunately, Chris did because I didn't think about it either. Um, but, uh, I, I think that it was it was because um, I I love films that are really self specific uh, that um, that are saying something that is so much that one artist saying it, mm. and in such a specific way that it feels universal. Um, that's yeah. and and John, let's get on that because yeah. this is kind of like a transitional moment right now. When we talk about how uh, people who want to get their script into a company, a production company, or a studio, what are some of the steps that they can take? Because you know, as an independent producer, I definitely read a lot of scripts. I'm sure that you do as well. Um, but there's always just a difference between those who get in the studio, you know, get into the studios and those who don't. And it's a clear difference that a lot of people probably don't understand. So if we can just go into that a little, um, because you were getting there and I was like, oh, yeah. I want to. <laughs> well, I, I can't, uh, well, I, I can't speak to the studio thing very much because I've only worked on a couple of studio films and um, uh, my experience there is, is fairly limited. And it would be because that's what studio experience is. It, um, it's uh, it's a huge machine. No matter how large or small the film is, is a massive machine. So um, you get to you know touch your your part of the thing, and then it goes down the line to the next worker and buy, and you never <laughs> see it again. And, you, and you, maybe you go to the premiere, um, and that's that's no fun. You know, I don't I don't like to do that. I I like to be involved. But there is a difference, though, when you when you see studio scripts, the way that it, the type yeah. of that they go for, there's a very specific. Yeah, there's. Um, well, uh, well, I think that that um, just by the scale of economy, uh, they end up having to be risk averse, and and I'm saying have there in a very conventional way. I don't think anybody has to do anything, but um, uh, it, the, the conventional wisdom is that um, they have to do films that are going to appeal to a broad audience. That way they can make back all this money that they didn't need to invest in the first place. Studio spending is always ridiculously inflated compared to what an independent can do. So um, because of that, they look for material that is um, appealing to four quadrants, you know, young, old, male, female, has to kind of fit everybody. And um, it has to, you know what, it doesn't have to appeal to anybody, actually. It just has to not offend anybody. And hmm. so you get very, very bland and inoffensive work. And um, right. everything starts to kind of feel the same. Um, and uh, I, I think occasionally you have um, directors and writers uh, like Chris Nolan who are allowed to to break out of that um, to an extent. You know, they're allowed to do a certain kind of thing. But um, 
I prefer independent film for that reason because uh, we're working on uh, a much smaller economy and so more risks can be taken and, and, and actually at a lower budget, uh, higher risk is rewarded. Hmm. Yeah, well do also, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, do you think that we, we talk a lot about how you can see that the economy is shifting, but also yeah. the, the industry is shifting right now with um, COVID-19 and um, just kind of the economic crisis that we're in. You see theater, how we talked about this article that we read and it was saying how like AMC, they're bankrupt and um, Amazon and I, uh, Apple, they are buying, they're buying up the, the theater houses because yeah. apparently there was this law that was passed yeah. where before, I guess, if you distributed, you couldn't own a movie theater, but now you can. Now you can. <laughs> so do you think that because um, Amazon and um, Apple, they have these platforms like Apple TV and Amazon Prime where they are just hungry for content? Because, you know, once you're on Netflix, it's like, seen them, seen it, seen it. I need something new. People, you know, in now the information age, they're binge watching content. I mean, I can watch, you know, I watched what, what you call it, Game of Thrones, me and my roommate, like that was like our escapism, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you, and you just tear through it. Yeah. Yeah. So, do yeah. you think that now with um, with this shift, that you know, independents are going to be able to have like more of a fighting chance to be to be seen on oh, yeah. a larger platform? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I'm already seeing it happen, and I think it's great. And um, the the people who are going to be able to come back from this the first people who well i need to i need to actually talk about both sides of this coin here when we can finally start producing again we when we can finally go to set again in any way that can be afforded because the insurance is you know putting another 30 percent onto budgets right now um so anybody who can afford to get back into production um there's only going to be really two ends of that scale. There's gonna be Disney will be able to afford to make the Marvel and Star Wars features. Mm -hmm. And then <clears throat> there will be, you know, me and Tish. And there's not gonna be anything in between because um, either you're making something, you're, you're, it's huge budget, and you can afford, you know, I'm sure Apple will be doing the same thing. Amazon can do the same thing. They can afford to eat that additional cost. They can afford all the insurance and they already have these guaranteed platforms, soon guaranteed theaters. And so they're good. But um, uh, the, the middle class of filmmaking um, will not exist for a little while. Folks who... Um, Mm -hmm. Folks who like like Tish and myself, if you add another thirty percent onto our budget, that's you know it's a lot to to add on. But still, we can make a film at a budget right. where you can make your money back. You know, we're still exactly. viable. And um, back in two thousand seven, I I did an experiment on YouTube called Fudio, um, that was uh, a, a bunch of us were out of work because of the writer's strike, and. Um, and I, you know, I, so I had a bunch of writers that I was, I was working with and none of us could legally work. So um, we put together a, a 
web series. This is 2007. There were even limits on how long a YouTube video could be. I think originally there was, the limit was four minutes. And um, uh, we did this experiment. We were like, can we shoot stuff in our garage? Like write it and shoot it and put it out within the space of a week and grow an audience that way. And we used the word Fudio because it's a meaningless word that we could tag and make sure that things were actually um, traveling. Um, it's actually an acronym for FM, we'll do it ourselves. But um, uh, because we were like, we're just gonna do the full production ourselves in my garage, literally my garage, and put stuff out on YouTube. And we found, you know, we put out uh, for 46 weeks, we put out a, a, a short a week and um, built an audience at that one point of 3 million uniques. And this was 2007, 2008, you know, um, and that that lesson that, that I learned there, I started spreading around like, yeah, everybody, you know, it's a flat world now. You can, everybody can make great looking content, you know, digital cameras were just coming in and you can cut stuff at home and you can, you know, make music on GarageBand. You can actually do it. I was so excited. I was proselytizing that hard. And now I, it's actually even better because um, this content that you could make on your own in your garage now looks even better than it did then. The stuff you can make with your phone looks really good right now. And uh, instead of, you know, yes, you can monetize on YouTube and monetize very, very, very well, far better than we could. We couldn't at all in 2007. Um, but now also um, Amazon and Netflix and, you know, Hulu and there, there are a lot of streaming homes that are buying your content they will buy your content and a, and a lot more, and a lot newer ones too a lot yeah more. a lot of new platforms as well but i do want to answer this question guys so bd gundo who is actually a really good line producer so big up to bd um she asks what does low budget look like is it under a million under five million so you can distinguish between the Disney and people like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It, it, it goes up and down. And when um, when I first got into the business in 19, was it, uh, 1997, um, the video safe number, and, and, and by video, it like literally was VHS back then. Um, <laughs> my beard is gray. Uh, <laughs> that it, it, the, the video safe number was if you spend only this amount of money, then uh, you'll still be able to get a profit back. And it was $5 million. Anything that was made under $5 million was like, you're going to get your money back. And that was $5 million in 1997 dollars, too. So it meant something. And, um, and today, that video safe number is about 500000 mm -hmm. um, So I used it back in the day. Low budget was $5 million. Today, it's, um, it's definitely sub $1 million. Um, but you know, I'm seeing titles that are getting picked up by real sales companies getting real representation and you're hitting you know Amazon that are you know three hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars and uh, you know and the great thing is you can make a really good looking movie for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars now. Yeah. So can I run in here really quick, Tish? Um, one of the reasons I was really excited to meet you today, John, is because looking at your interviews, looking at things you've been saying, there's a pattern. And I think looking at this pattern, I understand the importance of you right now. Let me let me break it down a little bit. Even in the stories you're telling right now, you say, I've had this problem and I, I responded with this. 
Now, in this situation of COVID, like you were saying, we have these budgeting issues, insurance going up. What I want to know is what's your strategy? Because you understand how to problem solve, and we don't give you enough credit for that. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, Tish and I have had this conversation that every producer is essentially just a firefighter. You're always running into a burning building. You know, that as soon as somebody, as soon as somebody has the idea of a movie, it just like becomes a burning building. You know, it, it was never a building that was not on fire uh, <laughs> until someone sees it in the theater and goes, "Look, that building not burning." And then you go, "Oh, yeah, I guess it, I guess it's not burning now." Um, uh, that's that's what it feels like to be an independent producer. But um, but thank you. That I guess is it was the process that I fell into because I got into this business young enough that I wasn't observing my process. So I was just doing. Um, but it's a process that um, that has now gotten you know obviously refined over time. And um, I think that that my my path forward and and this I guess would be the path forward I would suggest to you and to anyone else. Um, it's not just in 2007. It was pick up a, a camera, a prosumer camera at Best Buy, and go in your garage and and make a movie, yeah. um, and then take it to festivals. That's what I was saying, you know, back then. Today, um, because of what's going on uh, with the quarantine, like I, I, I've got a, several projects that were like, you know, in casting and just stopped, you know, uh, because of the shutdown. And and I'm not I'm not ready to move ahead. I'm not ready to uh, to try to go uh, to set right now myself. I'm just I don't feel confident uh, in doing that. So what I'm doing instead, in order to get myself to where um, as soon as I can pull the trigger and, and get back into business, the business of film, yeah. that, um, that I'm already in the process of the business of storytelling. And that's all about intellectual property. And that's, um, that's really the way you control your destiny. Then that's a lesson that we can see um, not only from auteur filmmakers, um, but also uh, something you can take away from YouTube influencers and uh, from the YouTube economy is that um, if you are, it's the lesson I learned from Studio, that if you are putting out material consistently, even if you're learning as you go, uh, that, that uh, and you're doing, you're putting out something that's genuine to you, uh, that is your true IP, your genuine intellectual property that you care about and you're going to keep on putting out in the world regardless how many times you get kicked uh, or because you're getting kicked, you have to put that thing in the world. That's the thing that's going to succeed because you're not going to stop doing it. Um, and uh, if you keep doing that consistently, uh, you're going to find an audience, you're going to find success. Um, the, the, the people who really break through um, and, and, and this is what I'm, again, I can only tell you anecdotally what, what I'm doing. Uh, is there a number of uh, intellectual properties that I've developed, you know, that I've, you know, controlled myself. And during this time where everything is shut down and I can't go into production for uh, film, I'm, uh, I'm writing, I'm developing some of that stuff um, that will be prose that's released as an ebook. There's some of that material I'm uh, developing for animation because animation is something we can do. 
Um, uh, some of that I'm now developing for um, audio drama, you know, like a audio book version of podcast drama. So um, the, the idea for me is I'm going to look for all these other avenues of, well, what, how can I tell a story? But it's all going to be attached to an intellectual property that is also a film and television property. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't make the film and television property right now, but I can still plant the flags for the intellectual property. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, the, one of the things I'm working on right now is a, is a fantasy uh, adventure novel that I actually wrote a series of short stories a number of years ago. And mm -hmm. over quarantine, I've been editing those and getting them in shape to release. And they're gonna be released you know, once a month, a uh, chapter at a time. Each chapter is a novella, about 65 pages. And there's 36 of them. And so I'm gonna keep dropping those novellas out, building this audience that way. The podcast that then comes out is the radio drama. It's an audio drama version of those chapters. There are uh, comic book artists that I'm working right with right now to put out comic book panels that are related to that. So I'm trying a lot of different things, but it's all related to one IP. That way uh, I can grow that audience. And when I can get back to feature film and I can get back to streaming series, I can already say, here's a proven audience that I've put together that I can, I can point to that comes along with this as an existing IP. Ladies, oh, thank you. Oh, I can leave now. Thank you. <laughs> get to work. Get to work. Well, I'm but, but, literally. Oh, go, Tish, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why we're smiling so much is because because <laughs> it's literally what we're doing. Like, and Bestie, you know what I'm talking about. Like everything yeah. you just said is literally the conversations me and Tish have all the time and it's literally like but not only that it's the conversations that we keep having episode after episode with people like and there's there's this we when we talked to Andy Fickman last week we talked about skill set like you have one skill set you're really good at that that skill but you can transfer to some of those skills into something else right yeah. and we're yeah. urging we've been urging like artists like okay we know that you can't act right now but can you write a book you know, we know that you can't do anything. Can you like produce a short? You know, can, we know that you can't do anything. Can you and, start a podcast? And a you know, lot of like, actors don't there's think this they thing. can. There's this they, thing. They, a, lot, a lot of actors think they don't they, that they can't, but you know they can. You're absolutely yeah. right. Well, Tish, you were talking to me about yeah, that so about your own that. skill set. That like how you applied. How did you do that? How did you first realize you could take these skill sets that you had from outside of film? And apply them to film, and then film and apply to podcasts. When when did you realize well, that? I didn't like that, John. <laughs> <laughs> but but honestly, you know, I've been having conversations like this. You know, you know, I believe in the whole IP thing, so it's never been far from a thought for me. Because yeah. even the films that I own, we've been like, okay, it's a film, but it's going to be a comic book. <laughs> it's going to be a yeah. comic book, but it's also yeah. going to be a toy. It's going to be a toy, but it's also going to be a t-shirt. Like, so the idea of like maximizing off of one IP is just, just something that I, I first of all, first of all, it's something that I produce with my company, my um, company that I home my own with my husband. And secondly, it just makes sense. It just makes sense, especially in a high risk, you know, industry like film. If you have other areas, then it also draws in more investors. 
you know, uh, it gives you the potential to grow, you know, grow in different areas, build an audience in different areas, and then use that to monetize off of that. It's what I have been urging artists to do for years. Yep. That's yep. <laughs> uh, also what I hear you saying, John, and for a filmmaker, it can mean creating an IP and figuring out all of the multiple ways that you can monetize on it. But even like you said, as an artist, creating content, figuring out, I heard you say an ebook, um, figuring out one asset that you can have and all of the other assets that you can build around that. And you're yeah. seeing people do that in this digital space where mm -hmm. they'll have a book and then they'll start consulting and then they'll like, you know, they'll have like a, a webinar and then they'll, and then that yeah. might turn into like a whole nother book, which turns into a web series, which turns mm -hmm. into a film. And um, I've had these like revolving conversations with just even myself and Tish knows, that's why I was just smiling so hard. Because sometimes as an artist, when you're trying to think of things as far as monetizing on, on things and as from an entrepreneur standpoint, there's this shift that happens. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, at least for me, I was just always in my artist bag, just artist, 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 artist. And I realized that what I was getting and what I was putting in wasn't matching up. Yeah. And the entrepreneur within me was like, there just has to be a better way. And I would have conversations with Tish and I said, I need to create more assets. I need to create more assets. But we also need to I also need to create one one asset that has multiple things that I can offer from that at that asset. Yeah. And that's when like I shifted from doing my YouTube channel to doing an album. Now we're like creating and developing a curriculum for school districts. And um, I mean, it's evolving into like a parent's guide. And these are That's things great. that are giving giving us literally that are going to pay us yeah. <laughs> times over, but also allowing a space to be creative. So for those people watching, I think that's like the resounding thing that we're, we continue to talk about on the show and that I, I'm hearing you say is find one thing, multiply it. There's <laughs> a word for that too. There yeah, you have to. Call it, they call it transmedia. They call it yeah. transmedia. Yeah, and, and, and uh, I, I actually had a, a pitch I was taking out in 2010, uh, 2009, actually, we took to Comic-Con with Fudio that was a transmedia project. And we were trying to explain how like, well, you see, it starts out with a feature, but then uh, there's a web series that connects it to another feature and then the backstory for all of those are in a comic book. And mm -hmm. everyone was kind of like scratching their head and we couldn't get anybody behind it. You flash forward now, I can go, you know what Marvel does, the MCU thing, how they got, we're gonna do that. Yeah. You, know, um, it, you sometimes have to wait for somebody else to, to break that ground, you know, um, uh, unfortunately. Uh, there, you know, there are a lot of things that I would have loved to have been the the first to to you know to break into. But what I've what I've really learned is that um, there's no real honor in being first. Uh, there's just what you do well within whatever ground that's been broken, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and the thing that you will do well is the thing that you that you can't help doing, um, the thing that you're going to keep doing anyway, you know, the thing that you love. And what you were saying about um, 
finding a lot of different ways of monetizing that and how that becomes the, the, the artist has to step over into a different thing into entrepreneur. That's, that is really uncomfortable for a lot of people. It was uncomfortable for me. Like as a writer, uh, it's always hard for me to go out and like pitch myself. Um, and when I was working at new market, if I had any screenplays that I was going to pitch, if I went anywhere else, you know, the stuff that I write is not the kind of stuff that new market did oddly enough. Um, the stuff that I chose to produce and acquire to distribute for new market isn't what I write. I write far more genre stuff. I, I write, you know, fancy adventure swords and sorcery stuff. I, you know, uh, far more, I'm probably closer to like star Wars and Lord of the Rings in my own personal writing than what we did. And, um, uh, anytime I would take my stuff out, the first thing people would say is, well, if it's any good, why isn't new market doing it? And so, so I had this whole, uh, uh, pen name, uh, JCO Henry, that was the name that was on anything I took out and sold and that I was always on the phone pitching JCO Henry's work because it wasn't mine. And I felt better about that. And, um, uh, I realized that, uh, a lot of what was holding me back was just how I felt about you know, myself in the work, you know, I could pitch somebody else's stuff all day. And um, a lot of artists just have a hard time pitching themselves and getting behind themselves that way and talking about themselves. Some artists do not, but a lot of artists do. Um, and the other thing is that there's a lot of work that goes to it. That like once you've made a film and you've got to go out and sell that film and you're going to spend a year of your, or so of your life marketing that film and talking about it, well, then you're a marketeer for a year and a half and you're not a filmmaker anymore. And, um, and that's kind of a bummer too. And a lot of people don't want to do that, but you've got to find a way to do it in a way that you find tasteful, you know, uh, and not only tasteful, but replicatable because you're going to need to do it over and over and over again. And so it should really be something that you love because you're going to have to do it over and over again. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, can we can we talk a little bit about self distribution? Yeah, about getting on the ground and you know taking a project. Someone decides that they want to take their own film, and I'm going to distribute it myself, which actually is a really good idea. I always tell people yeah. that because the cost, the marketing cost, is like one fourth of what the studio is going to charge you. Yeah. So. If someone's out there, they have a film right now, and they say, you know what, I'm just going to go and I'm going to do this. There's The markets are a little closed now. But, mm -hmm. yeah. but um, if they want to do that now, what advice would you give them? Um, you should. Uh, you know, if you have a way of making content right now safely and not, you know, putting yourself at undue risk, you should because there is a hunger for content. There is... Uh, a need for, as you said, people are burning through content during quarantine. They want more and more has to be produced and Disney can only own everything. So the rest of us have to do something. Uh, so, uh, you know, and Apple is still catching up. So um, uh, you should get out there and, and you should make content. And um, if you're trying to then get it out into the world, there are so many different ways of doing that right now. I mean, you actually can, if you, if you wanted to monetize uh, material on even on YouTube, you could. Um, you there you could uh, because uh, really uh, YouTube and, and any other kind of cast 
system like podcasting is built on uh, growth of an audience. So you've got to have consistency over time. Maybe you have to break that feature down into little pieces and only post it, you know, like, you know, two to five minutes at a time on YouTube. But you can build a channel and you can monetize off of that. If you're going to do a larger film, obviously, um, you know, something where you are spending like $350,000. YouTube is maybe not going to be the kind of thing where you can get all your your uh, money there, but um, but you can uh, sell you know from a silo site if you were wanting to print discs. Um, you can um, uh, there are a lot of ways that you can um, you can self distribute through subscription models to a website that basically really is only going to work if you've got a following already that's going to go to that silo. But if you have time, there really is no better marketing tool right now than time. Um, Hesher that, that we were talking about before, um, that was a movie that um, I had $300,000 to distribute. That's actually, Hesher is a really good example. I had $300,000 to market that film. Um, and uh, I was planning on releasing it in 10 cities. So I, I really only had like 30 grand per city. And um, this is a film with Rain Wilson and, and uh, Natalie Portman and, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I didn't have any money uh, because this was for a brand new outfit. Uh, this was right after New Market. It was for a company called Recon Hill. And, um, and frankly, the, the corporate owners of the company didn't believe in the company very much, and they're kind of trying to kill us. And so uh, it was like, well, here's 300,000, see what you can do. And um, what I didn't, yeah, I didn't have in money, I did have in time. And I found that if we did not do, we didn't do any television, we didn't do any radio, we didn't do any uh, billboards, no bus stops, nothing. Everything was... Um, an ad buy on IMDb and Ain't It Cool News was a thing back then and uh, a number of websites like that that we put ads on consistently for about three months because we had that lead time. Um, and then we did Facebook campaigns that were just viral spreads. Um, uh, the character Hesher, the lead character, had a thing where he would spray Hesher was here. He would graffiti tag it. Um, Hesher was here on things. And we had an app that you could you could actually, you can't do this anymore, but you used to be able to tag other people's Facebook profile pictures and it would put the tag on the wall behind them. Like, you know, even their head overlapping and like it really was on the wall. And we did this thing for like three months of just like virally tagging people's stuff. And we had, we had the character Hesher had, had stolen this girl Becky's purse and stolen her phone and was using her Becky's Facebook page to communicate with people. So like Hesher's traveling around as this girl Becky is sending messages to people and everything. We played these weird Facebook games and, and, and we got into, um, uh, Rain Wilson's got a Twitter following that he engaged. And by the end of the day, when we opened, we were in the top three in every market we opened in. In all 10 markets, we were in the top three having spent 30 grand per city. Here in Los Angeles, we were at the Arclight and we were number three. Number one was Thor, which was Natalie's other uh, movie out at the time. I uh, can't remember number two. And then there was Hesher that we spent 30 grand. I mean, we literally spent less in the entire country than they spent in LA that day. And we still opened at number three. Well, is it possible, I'm sorry to cut you off, John, but is it possible to talk about cost when we talk about that? 
Because I feel like whenever we hear the word cost, we always think money. Yes, you only spent 30,000 in those cities, but there was a different type of currency you were playing with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, there are a lot of man hours, which were, which were mine. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I'm the kind of distributor there where, um, you know, when, when we played, um, uh, in, uh, South by Southwest, we, we played a number of theaters there. We weren't actually in South by, but we rented out some theaters nearby. Uh, we did a partnership with Alamo Draft House and we, uh, and we, um, opened up in a theater there. I'm sorry, my cat's going <laughs> we, we opened up the theater there. We held, we had a house party. We had a big event at South by Southwest. We did so much at South by Southwest, in fact, that all of the coverage of South by that year talked about Hesher as though we were in South by and we weren't. We were just South by adjacent and we invited everybody over and had a really good party. So they talked about it. Um, uh, putting in the, the time to arrange that kind of thing and build the relationships that we built with Mondo and we built with um, Draft House Cinema and Tim League at that time, um, the amount of time that we spent um, uh, building a relationship with Metallica to get them to let us use the music in the film. Because when I picked it up, it was it still had festival rights, and Metallica had never allowed anyone to have five of their songs in a film. So, like, the time it took to get convince Metallica to let us use the songs. Also, they ended up falling in love with Spencer in the movie, and then they let us use their fan Twitter, which blasted out to an incredible number of people. So... Um, uh, yeah, there was a there was absolutely a cost in man hours, and had we had an actual staff, I could probably calculate that for you. It was really just me and Spencer, <laughs> the director of the film, you know, running around Austin. I'm I'm the guy who would go into the theaters and like quality check the volume, you know, before the screenings. You know, um, I'm that jerk. Uh, so uh, I, I like to be hands on. And, and yeah, it, there is a huge cost to that. But that's that investment. That's that reinvestment that you're talking about. And and that's why it has to be something like every actor knows, you already know this, man, that every actor's got like five side hustles. And all it is is, is saying, you know what, I, I could be doing these various side hustles that are, or, or little paid gigs that are getting a little bit of money doing some work for somebody else. But if I actually owned that property and I was doing that work for myself, I feel a whole lot better about putting this time in, mm. you know, and, and I, I, I think that was my, my lesson that I learned in all that time of having to like, well, I've got kids and I have to make a living and I'm going to do, I learned how to market other people's material. I learned this sort of, if you're going to do this, you've got to do it from soup to nuts. You've got to carry it all the way out to the very last thing and qualities mm -hmm. check this out. And I learned that in a way that had nothing really to do with my own work, just helping other people's work. And I, I think I was probably 50 years old before I felt confident enough to go, I'm gonna use these tools for my own, you know, my own stuff. But um, do yourself a favor though and do it now. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I was gonna say that though, also John, like I think when people also think about resources, because I talk a lot, I talk about this a little bit in my ebook that I'm writing, FYI, <laughs> um, that when, <laughs> that when people talk about resources, they think that the resources already have to be there. A lot of the times when I have collaborated with people, I've just reached, I was just like, hey, I'm doing this project. 
I'm putting this together. They might say yay or nay, but I just, I like, I have a list of like maybe 10 or 20 people. And I'm just going down a list and like, hey, I got this. And it might be like five people on the list who get back to you really, you know? And out of that, all of those five people, maybe one person might be interested because they don't have anything else to do. Everybody think, thinks that artists are always busy and it's just not true. Like they're freelancers like everybody else and they wanna get their next project and they'll see it as an opportunity to get some money at some point. So they'll start the relationship with you. and But it's really up to you as the individual to uh, really show them like, you know, that you're in it. You're in it for the long haul. You're doing the work, that you're professional. That you're not a kooky, crazy person who, <laughs> you know, like it's really up to you to really show people who you are when you get the resources. And there's resources out there. You know, I think people are just afraid because we're told in this industry all the time that, oh, they're going to blackball you or this or that. Jeffrey Riddick yeah. came on. He's like, you know how many people told me they're going to blackball me? It's like five or six times. I've said the same thing. I've been, I've been told that like four times. I, I have been told by the major agencies that they would never work with me again. And then like three days later, hey, we got this thing. You know, if, if you are doing something, if you've got something, it doesn't matter if it's if it's money or it's a project, is it, they'll want to play ball. That you know, the the business is built on these opportunities. Don't don't let anybody tell you that every single film that we were successful with, everybody else crapped on. I mean, told us that it would not work. Uh, I I I know I've told you this story before, Tish, uh, but. Um, when we that screening of Memento, where we didn't sell Memento, uh, we did we had finished the movie and we did like a, a you know rented a theater and invited everybody in town because we thought there's going to be a bidding war, and everybody hated it, and like walking out silent. And I was standing against the wall, like people are filing out, and like there's me and there's Aaron Ryder, the producer, and there's my boss, and Harvey Weinstein walks by because I mean he was the real distributor then and we had never done anything before and he comes walking by and he says to my boss right in front of me that wasn't a movie that was two hours that I'll never get back uh F you and uh and then I went home that night and was like I think I lost my job uh mm. that's is real bad <laughs> this sucks and it was coming back on monday and finding out that they had decided that well the only way to recoup our losses is to is to release this thing uh, so we're going to get behind it we're going to make this work um uh at that point and then of course it also not only did it was it very successful and and did over, uh, like 85 million worldwide but it got a a nomination for um for best screenplay uh, best original screenplay. And so um, from that point on, that whole, yeah, you know, this is never going to work. It kind of bounced off of me because I had the luck of the very first thing out of the gate. You know, we had proven success. So I was really lucky. Not, you know, um, uh, I, I can point to the fact that I had plenty of, you know, dues paid for years and years in the theater prior to that. But my first outing with film, I got really, really lucky. And it set my mindset at that point that well, everybody else is wrong. So, right. um, 
I don't think anyone, you don't, you should never develop that kind of a negative mindset. You know, thinking everybody's wrong is just not the way to go through life, but to at least trust your own instincts and to say, uh, and that was really what it was for me when I, when I would go and screen films is like, wow, I, I really like when I saw Donnie Darko, I didn't, the, my first screening of it, I had no idea what it meant. I just knew that it really, it moved me. And I was like, I, this touched me in a way that it's going to touch somebody else. I don't even have to know what it means. When I talked to Richard Kelly, the director and writer director, he didn't even know what it meant. But uh, at, at that time he hadn't really processed it himself. But, um, but I knew that I wasn't wrong about it because I felt the same way as I had about Memento uh, when Chris pitched me that idea. And when other people said that wouldn't work, they were wrong. And they were, so I just trusted that they were wrong about, about Darko as well. And that kind of just has continued with me. Yeah, and there's something about intuition, right? Having your own intuition about, you know, I, I'm, always tell people to have a core value system, you know, when you do your projects or when you have a com company or when you're an entrepreneur, because that's the thing that kind of leads you into like all of your projects, like having that strong intuition and that strong belief in the projects. And I've seen some, I'm going to, I'm going to say this. I have seen some really bad films. I've seen <laughs> And the producers and the filmmakers believe in it so much that when you hear the fact that they sold it for whatever they sold it for, and you're like, somebody bought that movie. <laughs> really? That, yeah. Right? Yeah. Really for yeah. that. It was just like this persistence in this constant belief. And I'm not trying to say go out there and make bad movies. What I'm trying to say is, is that you even have people who are out there and they don't make the best content, but they have this constant belief in the things that they're doing and they, they go with their intuition. And at the end of the day, their films get sold, their projects get sold. Someone sees it and they're able to convince somebody to have the excitement that they have for their projects, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think that that just takes a, a mindset. Let's talk about a mindset <laughs> that mm -hmm. you have to have in order to just see it through, you know? You know there, there, are two, there are two films that I think perfectly encapsulate this and they're both true stories and the the films themselves were, were actually, it's the same screenwriting team. Unfortunately, I'm spacing the screenwriting team's name right now, but they wrote um, both uh, Ed Wood and Dolomite is my name. And uh, if you are not Rudy Ray Moore, if you are not Ed Wood, at heart, then you will not get it done. You know, you you have to have the thing that everybody loves about Rudy Ray Moore and everybody loves about Ed Wood is not necessarily their talent. <laughs> it's the fact that they their drive was so genuine to them that like just the joy comes off of it, and they wouldn't stop regardless. And um, there's a uh, uh, a, a real, I, I don't know. There's, there's something that I think everyone can, can kind of admire that, you know, that, that passion that, uh, that, that comes across in, in that kind of a thing. But you, you do need that kind of, that mindset of, I am going to do this and I'm going to do this regardless. So again, it has to be something that you love and that you really feel passionate about, or you're not going to keep doing it. I no, guess I one, oh. Go ahead, Tish. No, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. 
Um, I think like, John's like, who's coming? Who's next? Give it to me. Uh, someone's, someone took a chance on you. Someone said yeah. yes. Yeah. Someone said, okay, this pitch is where it is. I'm going to go for it. Now that you are in a position, what, what are some of the things you would say, hey, when you're coming to pitch or something like this, this stands out to me. This is the stuff that makes me go, you know what? This person is different from the rest. Number one, that there is, thank you for asking that because I wish more people would, uh, would think about this part right here, the pitch and what immediately comes after. Um, uh, I've been to a lot of uh, programs, a lot of pitch fests, you know, the, the, where writers can come and like speed pitch and that kind of thing, like the speed dating with, you know, pitching and uh, things where they, you know, uh, you, you pay to get to come pitch a certain number of people or to be taught how to pitch. And nine times out of 10 in those situations, they have people like standing up at a microphone and pitching or, or on a time limit and, and no actual legitimate pitch ever happens that way. That's just not how it, it works. Um, a pitch is really, uh, not a performative thing. And that's um, what uh, the mindset I think a lot of people get into because you think of it like an audition. And um, so people are like, oh, I've got to have my, you know, my three minute pitch down. I really got to have this memorized. I, I don't want to get off it. And if anybody asks me a question, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to backpedal and remember where I was. And uh, I'm going to try to have cue cards. Can I go to cue? The thing to remember about both the pitch and what immediately comes after is that anything that you do, any project you're now considering making together, you're going to have to work with that person for at least uh, a couple of years. And uh, if not, you know, if, if you're lucky, that person's going to be in your life for the rest of your life. You know, if you're lucky, this thing is so successful that you keep coming back to, to this property. And uh, so the, the thing that you really want to make sure that people are, are understanding when they meet you is that you're a genuine, real human being that someone can put up with for a couple of years in stressful situations. Um, and, uh, and that you're going to be businesslike and professional uh, in those situations. And that's the place where I see artists fall down all the time when they're making this transition to entrepreneur. It's because when I say to them, you need to have that passion, you need to be doing the thing that's going to passionately drive you. They go, yes. And they lean into that and they express their passion in the way that as an artist, they know, which is performative. Yeah. And um, you cannot maintain a performative energy, as we all know, for any amount of time uh, unless, uh, unless there's something off in your chemistry that can provide you with that in, with that energy. There's just no way that you're going to be able to be performative 24 hours a day, or at least, uh, you know, every day that you're working for the years that it's going to take you to do it. They, they don't need to know that you're passionate because when you come into pitch, it's shown uh, in your, in your pitch and in the way you talk about it. They want to know that you're passionate about this in how you're getting it done and your clarity of vision. Um, I would much rather uh, have a director come in and talk to me about their project or a writer even uh, come in and say to me, um, you know, this is, this is the, you know, the feature. This is where I, I see we can go with it. 
this is what I would like to, you know, the next project that I have after that. And this is how I see getting these things done. Um, uh, right now, um, there's so few resources uh, available to us that we all kind of have to be self-starters. And um, now more than ever, um, uh, when you're pitching someone, they're, they're looking at you as, is this someone I can do business with? And also, what are they bringing to the table for me to partner with them? Because um, uh, nobody really has, unless they are, you know, Disney, nobody is thinking of this as, I'm so flush, I'm just hiring somebody on for a gig. You know, we're, we're thinking of this as everybody that's coming on as a team member and a partner. So I have to know that they're bringing something. Not the, the passion, yes, that's, that's going to keep you going. But what you're showing them is that you're applying that passion in a way that's actually effective. That, that, um, that uh, if you're a writer and you're presenting yourself to someone, that they're going to need to know that you deliver um, and that you're, your, you're going to hit your deadlines. When I, when I was like 15 years old, I went out to get my first job. Um, my father gave me this piece of advice. He was like, show up every day on time. And when the boss says, you know, gives you a job to do, just say yes, sir, and do it. And I was like, that's the worst advice I've ever heard. That's really terrible, lame advice uh, because it's so basic. And then I got out in the workforce and I realized how few people just do, how few people do that. Um, and so uh, that you, you really, you got to show up every day that you got to, you got to get the job done. And that's really, really basic, but you've got to apply those things to, to your work. And when you pitch, you got to come across as the person who is going to get the job done. And right after the pitch, you know, when they say, okay, we like this, we're, we're going to get into business with you. There's a time there where paperwork's being signed and escrow accounts are being checked and uh, cast lists are being drawn up. There is this period where the team is forming and that's the what comes next. That's the part that people don't think about that you really need to because now you're getting stressed out about are these papers gonna be signed? Is this really happening? The lights at the end of the tunnel and now I'm getting nervous that I'm gonna lose, I've got something to lose. Now you could lose your cool and blow this whole thing. And so um, at that point is really when people are filling you out to see how you're gonna be as a partner because now you're under the first kind of stress they're ever gonna see you under. Um, they're gonna start asking about what other projects you have, uh, what other things you're doing. And um, at that point, and I think at, at all points in that process, you just have to remember that you're not just a cog in the machine, that you are a partner, you're an entrepreneur, you're presenting them with, this is what I do, not can I have a job, but this is what I do and I'm really good at it. Would you like some of that? Uh, do, what, would you like me to do that on your team? Um, you know, you're not buying a ticket on the train, you know, or rather you're, you're not asking them to build your train, you're, you're just selling them a ticket on your train. You know? um, uh, nobody is going to, at this particular at this point, be able to offer you uh, this goal that you want because none of them have it right now. Uh, nobody has the thing that you want. Uh, uh, not the whole thing. They might have some of it, but nobody has the whole thing. So you've got to come with your piece of the puzzle and say, this is what I have. What do you have? Let's compare and, and come at it as equals.
It's a big statement. Um, I'm going to translate that for all the millennials that are watching. John just <laughs> said, get off of Tinder and go to a bar professionally. That's what <laughs> I got you, John. I got you. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I mean, really what I hear, um, what I hear you saying is that there is a certain level of emotional intelligence that you have to have. When, when I think of emotional intelligence, I think about um, an individual that can be collaborative, that can be, but also creative, but also have, um, have the business mindset to get it done and, um, and to not just ride on their emotions, but to actually like be present and be focused in the moment. So that's probably what, you, what we really try to tell all the people. Yeah, and, 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 but that being, being focused and professional in the moment, I mean, that's that's really hard to do and it's hard to sustain over a long period of time. And it's one of the reasons why um, film particularly, film and television, anything that you're producing in this way is a very collaborative process. Um, even even publishing is because, you know, with the editors that you're working with and the, then, of course, the marketing that you're doing of getting the work out there, there's always going to be a team and you're going to have to be able to collaborate. Mm -hmm. And so as much as um, uh, as the first part has to be, you've got to be passionate enough to be a self-starter. You also have to keep your ego in check. You've got to have, you know, that emotional intelligence to collaborate because it's always going to require uh, a team you're going to have to find a team that you can collaborate with. And, and also um, to add to that, John, consistency there, it requires, I mean, actors and a lot of artists, when it comes to their art, they're already disciplined. They're very disciplined about their art because it has to be a certain way and you feel a certain way and you need to bring that same effort and that same mindset to the business side of things. You you know, I find yeah. a lot of times that at some point people just want to stop. But when you're when you're getting into your pitch or you're trying to find the right person, it's not going to be every person. It's not going to be every company. There's just kind of like a when you find the right investor or you find the right person who wants to invest in you, there's a flow to it. There's a flow to it. And automatically, you know, whether or not you can deal with that person or whether or not you can't. Point blank. Know whether or not it's going to work for you or whether or not it's not going to work with you because there, part there have been yeah. films that I've passed on for that reason. Exactly. For that reason. It's like, it's yeah. not worth it. If it's not worth it, it's not worth it. You know, just be yeah. working with people you can't work with. It's a match game. It, de it definitely is. So I think that as artists, a lot of the times artists get weary, you get tired. I've been doing this for 20 years. I deserve this. Somebody needs to give me an opportunity, and it and you know you get screwed over out of your IPs that way, out of your scripts that way. You know you get frustrated when you see that a film that you wrote, you invested in for twenty years, gets all of this accolade, and then you're just in the corner looking at someone else taking yeah. the <laughs> taking the for the work that you put in there, and that that is a constant thing that happens in this industry that is like a disease in this industry it is not something that you hear one story or another that is always happening and everybody's yeah. paranoid but you can stop the paranoia if you find the right fit they match well, they, your, you, you, your yeah. yeah and it's always a negotiation uh whether it's you know like you can think of it like a job interview you can think about it like you know uh you know like speed dating 
there's always going to be a certain amount of negotiation of like, well, you know, I, I, I kind of like this person, but you know, it's a long train ride. Um, uh, it, there's, there's always going to be a certain amount of negotiation. You're going to, you're going to have to do a little cost benefit analysis. And like uh, there have been, there have been some uh, features that I really liked the feature. And then I met uh, the director or the team and I realized that, um, they were a dysfunctional team or that they were infighting and that like there was just never going to be any way that you know it, it was a bad investment because the film might have been good but the people you're going to have to work with were going to be nightmares mm -hmm. and um so that's it just wasn't worth it um uh, and i think as well that that we have to part the beginning of of being able to transition from an artist to an entrepreneur and do it safely for yourself is have is valuing yourself and valuing yourself realistically um, because there are going to be some things you can't do. Uh, you might be able to, be, you might be a great writer, but maybe you shouldn't be drawing the cover of your book. You know, <laughs> maybe, you know, uh, or, or maybe you're, maybe you're a really, you know, you're a, a writer who, or, a, or an actor who's written a part for yourself and you really want to make this short, but maybe you shouldn't direct it. You know, um, that's, you might feel like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do what John says. I'm going to control this whole thing out myself. And it's like, yes, but, um, really, really value yourself, really have a true evaluation of what your strong points are and, and then know what you're willing to negotiate in order to get that, you know, that support in those areas that you're not good in. And, and that's, that's the thing that, um, that, when people ask me how bad films happen or how um, uh, how it happens it, it, when you hear nightmare stories about you know someone's experience in Hollywood, how does that happen? It, it's always an incremental bad decision. It, it, there is it, it's very rare that anyone shows up in Hollywood and is like you know, they get off the bus and like Harvey Weinstein just ah you know that's like this is. <laughs> These things creep up on you. Uh, the, the, the horrors of Hollywood creep up on you. And it's always by incremental bad decisions that you made where you did not value yourself. And there, I'm not judging anybody because there's a lot of reasons why we don't value ourselves. And some of them are personal to us and some of them are systemic. But uh, we come into conversations with a certain idea of, of what we're going to bring to the negotiation. And when people say things like, yeah, we're going to distribute your film, but... Um, uh, we're, this is the deal you're going to get, you know, take it or leave it. Um, there's, we have such fear that our value isn't such that we're going to have another option that we shortchange ourselves. We take the bad option. It's, it's why so many films that, you know, Tish, you and I have talked about this of like films that don't come together because early on someone says, you know what, this, this actor is not right for the role, but we can get them. Um, so right. yeah, we're just going to do that. We're going to go with this actor cause we can get them and we might not have another opportunity. And then you get saddled with someone who's not right. And every decision downstream from that becomes how do we make up for the mistake that we already know we made? Yeah. Um, and that happens, that happens a lot. That yeah. happens a lot as well. You know, there's a lot of compromise, but I definitely, what I have, um, made a decision is that when it comes to how the film is put together and how well 
you know, how the type of actors that I want to have in the film, I just feel like it's just not worth it to compromise because it never turns out. I've had that happen so many times. It just never turns out right. So I think that people need to create, you know, the studio changes your creative vision enough. If you are doing this independently, just do what you have to do. Make a good movie. You know, make there, there are compromises. You, you'll know when the compromise is not right. You yeah. will. Uh, and, and, you know, um, that's the thing that, you know, I, I, I cited both, you know, uh, Rudy Ray Moore and Ed Wood before as, you know, guys whose passion was what carried them. It carried them because in the other half of it, they, you know, they, they made every wrong decision about who they should partner with. Um, so uh, that, you know, that's the, uh, the, that's the downside of that passion was like, they were so embracing of everything. There are no bad ideas. Yeah, there are. There's actually a lot of bad ideas. Um, uh, and um, uh, that kind of, well, whatever it takes to get it done, yes, yes, you, you should be driving yourself to get it done, but also know that you have value. Um, your first opportunity to get it done might not be the best. Um, it's not going to be the last, though. When people say things like, oh, this movie takes seven years to make, it's not because nobody was interested for seven years. It's probably because there were three bad versions of it that you explored along the way that came apart. And then you got to the, the good one at, at year seven. Thank you for clarifying that. Because I always feel like people are like, I think when people hear that story, they think, oh, I sat there for seven years. No, <laughs> right. that was yeah. an <laughs> for seven years. John, right. what's your mountaintop? As in, uh, when you career-wise or work and life, what's your mountaintop? I, can I, I, I'm going to get real for a second. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had it. I, I already reached my mountaintop, and I had a moment that um, I now refer to as a Liu moment, which is a reference to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, there's a moment in that film, uh, the character Liu Bai is played by Chao Yun-fat, and he's, uh, he's a swordsman and he's a, a Buddhist. And he, uh, he's studying, he's trying to um, reach enlightenment. And he, there's, um, uh, in his studies, he goes up the mountain uh, to these higher and higher monasteries. And, you know, when you reach the top, you'll have enlightenment. And he says he reaches the top of the mountain and he found no enlightenment. He, he only found emptiness. And uh, he comes back down the mountain feeling disappointed that um, he doesn't understand why emptiness would be at the top of the mountain. It's not until later that he understands that emptiness is the point. But um, at that moment, he comes down disappointed. And um, I had this moment, uh, my own mountaintop moment, uh, was in, I want to say it was 2009. I might have the year wrong, 2008 or 2009. And um, I was in Cannes at the Cannes Film Festival. And um, uh, the company that I was working for, New Market, was going gangbusters. We, uh, uh, we'd hit every marker of success that I had wanted the company to hit. And I was at a party in the south of France, and it was on a yacht. And um, 
I had that moment that I think a lot of people have uh, when they're at a, like a big party when there's a lot of celebrities around uh, and there were a lot of celebrities around is like, I wonder if there's like, is there, is this the party or is there like an after party or is there like a, a party behind the party? You know, where's like the cool party? That's when you go to like film festivals when, when I was young, it's the kind of thing you're, you're, you're doing it's like, where's the, you know, where's the best party at? And I suddenly realized that like this party is getting a little bit lame. Maybe I want to leave out of here. And I just made that decision too late because the boat pulled away from the dock and it was going to do this hard loop around the harbor and come back. And that's like going to be like an hour. And so I was like, oh, damn, I'm going to be on this boat for an hour. And I turn and there's somebody right next to me has had that same realization. And I'm standing on the like, oh, damn it. And I turn and I look, and it's Eddie Murphy. And I realized, and you know, and it's him and, and, and his guys, and they're everyone's like disappointed and like pulling at their phones, like, uh, we're gonna be on the boat. And uh, I suddenly realized if Eddie Murphy is here, there is not another party. Mm. I, I'm on a boat in south of France with Eddie Murphy. There's not another cooler party than this. This is it. And it's lame, mm. lame as hell. Mm. And none of us want to be here and we're stuck for the next hour. And uh, I suddenly realized that um, any part of the business that was going to be about the trappings of it or the, there's going to be another party, there's going to be something cooler, there's going to be a celebrity I'll meet, there's going to be a, at some point a key is handed to me and I turn the thing and this white light hits me and I'm like, ah, da, da. Wow. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. The only thing that exists is the work. And the only thing that exists really for you is going to be how the work makes you feel. And um, uh, the business took a turn uh, around that time. This was, you know, like I say, 2008, 2009. Um, I, the original founders of New Market sold the company. I started working for a more corporate outfit they were starting to pressure me because there had been an economic downturn to like buy movies for less, you know, put the screws to the filmmakers. And I, I actually started feeling so jaded about the whole thing that I, um, I quit. I, I walked out of a six figure contract um, and I went home uh, and for, um, several years in order for four years in order to afford insurance uh i became a librarian at a public school mm. uh and i wrote in the afternoons and in the mornings i read books to kids who are under 10. and it's very very difficult to be jaded when you're talking to kids who are under 10. it's i mean kids who've never heard the stories before you know and it it kind of um it reset my head uh, to not look for mountaintops anymore. Mm. Uh, and I also, I revisited, I should say as well, around that same time, I revisited the film Donnie Darko. I told you before, I didn't think the film meant anything when I bought it. And maybe it didn't to me then. But years later, when I revisited it, there's a line that um, there's a character called Grandma Death, and she whispers something into Donnie Darko, the lead, that she whispers something into his ear at one point. And you, when Donnie in, in, in is visiting his therapist, uh, 
she says, well, you know, what did the lady whisper? And he says, uh, everything on this earth dies alone. And he says, well, I find that incredibly sad. Uh, no spoilers, but the end, by the end of the film, he's sort of changed his mind on that. And I changed my mind on it too when I suddenly realized what it meant, which is that you don't have a, uh, you don't have to judge yourself by somebody else's standards. Um, that you come here to do what you come here to do. And when you leave, you really only have you and your God to account to for it. So anything that you're doing to try to please somebody else to find that other thing or whatever that's going to make you happy or change you, it's not going to. Uh, and it was at that point that I said, I'm never going to work for anyone else again. And I haven't. And I've steeply changed my lifestyle. Uh, I've become a bit more of an aesthetic maybe, but uh, uh, everything that I do is more meaningful to me now. There's not a single film that I did with Newmarket that I'm not proud of in some way. I, I'm, I'm happy to say, and again, very fortunate to say that. Not everyone can say that. But um, the work that I've been doing since then, uh, I can also say that I'm proud of. And, and right now, that's what matters to me. Well, I have to throw out this, this comment, guys, because people are loving this. This is what I needed to hear tonight. Thank you, John. I love this story. Yeah, this is uh, actually really, really great comments, guys. I wanted to put out there, but also, John. Speaking of, because I, I, we cannot, we cannot get off this podcast, finish this podcast without you talking about True Development, which is your company, where you can write, develop, where you can uh, help, you know, writers. And there's a lot of writers out there right now who are creating content. They're writing scripts. They don't necessarily know what direction to go to. They just have a really good idea. So tell us a little bit about your company, True Develop, Development, True development yeah. and how you help um, artists to kind of develop their scripts, stories, and whatnot. Well, I, um, I, there was something, there was a kind of a phenomenon that was going on in the business when I first came into uh, the film industry in the 90s. Um, there was a lot of money, a lot of like really just ridiculous money being dumped into the, the business at the time, a lot from Germany and Japan, a lot of foreign investments. And a lot of that money got spent on stupid stuff, a lot of really ostentatious stuff. And one of the things that a lot of companies did was they hired young women, a lot of them like right out of, some of them were out of film school and business school, sometimes not. Sometimes they were just very young actresses who come to LA and they would hire them uh, in the development department to meet with writers. Now, a lot of times they were qualified development people and a lot of times they weren't. Um, they were referred to as D-girls, development girls, because um, D-girls were gonna deliver the bad news. You know, when the studio is gonna tell you you had to make these changes, they figured that, you know, most scruffy neck bearded writers are going to take that news a lot better from a pretty girl. And so that was the idea. And it was a place where a lot of money got dumped for um, uh, a lot of fishing expeditions and development that wasn't really going anywhere. Um, it was a very devalued department. And unfortunately, a lot of talented women who were in development ended up 
hitting a glass ceiling even earlier than they would have because they were. It was assumed that they were D girls instead of actual development executives. I saw that happen to a lot of very talented executives. Um, what happened with me, of course, is that you know uh, uh, while I didn't suffer that same kind of discrimination, development was completely rendered uh, a dirty word. The idea was that development is only there to screw up your material. And okay. development is really supposed to be about helping a writer develop their story to the best of its own capacity. Uh, there is, um, uh, the, my philosophy has always been, you know, leave no fingerprints. And then, you know, what is the thing itself? Make it the best thing that it is without showing, you know, my fingerprints. Uh, should be the artist's brush, brush strokes. And if I have fingerprints on it, then you can't see the brush strokes. So um, uh, I developed over time um, a style of development that really, I guess it was a, a methodology that I started around Memento uh, and then carried through everything that we developed and worked on uh, at Newmarket. And when I left and decided I wasn't going to work you know, for anyone else anymore, I realized that um, that these development uh, methods, which in in many ways it's almost like a, having a like a personal trainer for a writer because it's about keeping you consistent, it's about keeping you on deadlines. It's about breaking down your story into manageable pieces so that you can keep writing so that you don't have writer's blocks, you know, that you can just keep the process going. And then once you're out the end of the writing process, where do you go from there? And in building that incremental, how do I now take this and do something with it? Now that, um, you know, like I said, with Newmarket, our development was, we, we never wasted a dime on development because we never developed anything that we did not produce. You know, uh, when I would hear about companies that, well, we've got 50 films in development. I was like, no, you've got 50 things you spent money on that you're never gonna get back. Um, nobody actually develops 50 things. They might preemptively buy something that they don't want someone else to get. Nobody's developing 50 projects. If you're gonna develop it, make it. And so that was what I did. Was, uh, if I acquire it, we're gonna develop, we're gonna make it, we're gonna release it. And, um, I, and I think that, uh, that, that with true development, uh, because that was the method I developed was have an idea but know that that idea has to get you out the door. You know, that, that we're not just gonna develop blue sky things, we're gonna develop something that no matter how crazy it is, uh, we're still gonna develop it in a way that we know we can get it out the door. We know we can actually make it. And so true development is um, uh, what I started actually offering um, as a plug and play development department because I knew around you know 2010 when i left that uh 2011 when i left um that company um that uh <clears throat> around that time um a lot of companies were downsizing and um you know the economy was still struggling and and so um a lot of people they couldn't afford to have an in-house development department a lot of companies couldn't but they could hire true development to be sort of the you know, the consultant that stuff got, you know, shoved off to. And so I did that for a number of years and I started to, to meet um, individual writers though, that were just um, uh, writers that I had met through Newmarket, you know, maybe somebody had pitched me and then they found me on Facebook and, 
uh, a friend of a friend reached out to me. It was like, hey, I've got you know this this idea. Um, I had all these writers start to just find me, and I, I I essentially figured out a way that I could package. Well, this is what I did to develop those stories for Newmarket. This is how we took it out in like eight to twelve weeks. How we went from ideation to a finished script to take to market, and it's it's a very replicatable system. So um, as soon as I figured out I could do that program, I started offering it uh, to individual writers. And so that's um, my job that I do that keeps the lights on is, um, is a coaching job where I'm working with writers on a daily basis, coaching them through their deadlines, being the sounding board, sometimes a little bit like a therapist uh, to help them through some of that process. But um, and helping them, you know, get the job done and just being that, being that guy. Getting it done. <laughs> say that. Getting, <laughs> getting it done. You got to so, get it done. So we're, we're ending, guys. We're getting close to the end of our podcast. But we ask people a question every time they come on, Darkoya. Yes. So, um, John, you know, you you've seen the news, you know, everything that's going on um, with just racial injustice and uh, COVID-19, the quarantine. And there's just so much happening in this world. Um, but we believe in using our platform as our form of activism. So um, as a black woman and, you know, black individuals on here and just allies, we want to say um, arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. Um, you know, the hashtag is not really trending, so we're doing it here. Um, but also, um, I've been out protesting and I don't know if you have, but there's various forms of activism. Uh, but when I've been out protesting, some of the chants that have been repeated are very creative and sometimes you're talking and you are like, you're really passionate, you're saying what you're saying. And then you're like, wait, hold up. I did, really didn't want to say that. That's not, <laughs> I don't, I'm not passionate about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, we came up with this thing where we were like, you know, we want to ask people who come on the show to also use this as their platform for the change that they want to see in the world um, as it just pertains to everything that's going on. So if you were leading your own protest, um, what would your chant be? It could be uh, positive, motivational. It doesn't have to rhyme. I just want to be it doesn't have to rhyme. Um, but um, just what statement would you want to say and what would you want to put out into the world? Um, you know, um, I probably from the, from the number of uh, podcasts and everything I've, I've done in the last you know year or so, it's, it, it has made me think about, um, you know, some of those, uh, <clears throat> some of those subjects that I, that I feel really strongly about and that I, that I do get vocal and, and locally active about. And the, the two things that, that I feel really are necessary for our, our world, our society to, to move ahead uh, is that we have to do better by our public education uh, because the next generation is, is, is only going to be, you know, as capable as we're educating them to. And we have to be able to reform uh, insurance and health care because people have to have access to health care. If you can't be educated, you can't be healthy. You know, uh, th those are the things that I have felt really strongly about. However, as much as I would like to be, 
very creative and come up with some chants about that kind of thing. I'm so disheartened right now. Um, really, to me, there there isn't anything worth saying if you're not saying justice for Elijah McClain mm. and justice mm. for Breonna Taylor. Mm. Um, yeah. I had previously said that there was absolutely, you know, we have to have education, we have to have the insurance, and yes, we do, but until the 13th Amendment has been, you know, challenged and reformed, uh, until our justice system is reformed, until there's transparency in our policing, and particularly until people are not being killed on the street for being different and behaving uh, differently within a different spectrum of behavior, mm. I'm absolutely horrified, absolutely horrified by uh, Elijah McClain's death. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I can't, I can be an ally, but there are things about uh, the racial experience that obviously I'm never going to be able to, uh, I'm never going to be able to understand. But um, as somebody who's always grown up around artists and been an artist and been around people who are different and express themselves differently. And uh, every time I see Elijah McClain, he lights me up. Uh, and and uh, those are the people that I work with. You know, those are the people that that's, if I have been an advocate for artists in my life, it's been for people who had something to say that they could not say it. So they had to have me talk to the money or they had to have me talk to the studio. They had to have me talk to the guy who controls the volume in their theater because artists can't always communicate that way. I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, that just crushed me. Uh, so, <clears throat> If it's not justice for Brianna Taylor and justice for Elijah McClain, I don't think there's anything worth saying right now. Amen. Thank you for that, John. Thank you for that. So, guys, we are coming to the end of our podcast. I do want to say that, John, are you okay with me giving your email out for those who want to reach out to you? Uh, yeah, the the uh, the Sharp Cry email is the one to you. Yes, johncry at sharpcry.com. Mm -hmm. I'm going to post okay. that, guys in our uh, chat. So if you want to reach out to John, John, we cannot explain how amazing it was to have you on today. You were just killing it. Killing yeah, thank you so much. Thank, thank you for having me. I mean, it's uh, like I, I, I'm really enjoying seeing that there is, uh, uh, you know, people are reaching out to each other and having these kinds of, you know, uh, uh, these conversations, I think, are, are fantastic. I think you guys are doing a wonderful job with it. This is a, a fantastic oh, show. And uh, just let me know what I can do to help uh, promote uh, both uh, this show and the receipts. Uh, let me know what I can do to help. Thank you. You, you should also watch the receipts. He yeah. is like on fire. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm there. I, Guys, check uh, out the receipts. Today's episode was so amazing. Uh, you can go to the receipts with Davon Williams uh, on you. Facebook. Check it out. You can also check it out on YouTube. It is. It was so good today, guys. If you're an artist or an actor and you want to hear somebody who's bringing the receipts, <laughs> oh my gosh, she brought the receipts, it. Dealing with these unions, guys, you definitely need to check out that episode today. It was so damn good. <laughs> so. I'm putting that That's out awesome. there. Thank you guys again. We'll see Thank you next you. Thursday, Thank 8 p.m. The receipts comes on at 4 p.m., correct? 4 p.m. Eastern yes. Standard Time, 1 p.m. Two episodes left. Two episodes left. Uh, but check us out. 
the receipts and you can check out to legit to QT every Thursday. Thank you guys. Go ahead, Tish, Davon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you all.